Heavenly Father, we thank you for being a God that uh, is uh, one who has had the plan of salvation since before uh, the foundation of the world, and also that uh, you've had uh, your sons coming into the world both the first and second time planned uh, long in advance, and uh, we are thankful for that. As we look at uh, this book of Thessalonians, we'll be reminded of the fact that Jesus is coming again and uh, that we are to live in a way that would reflect the fact that he could come at any time. And so, Lord, help us as we study this book, uh, uh, the uh, challenges it has in it, that we would take heed and uh, listen. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I get a little confused tonight. That's okay. I'm using my old preaching Bible. Uh, I had to send my newer one in because the binding came out so you know i'm having to retrace older pages and whatever so hopefully it'll stick together this bible fell apart i bought the same bible later on stuck notes in there and i'm not about to let that happen with this next one so we're got it at the press uh being bound so we'll see uh when that comes back we are looking at First Thessalonians tonight, and uh, we have cleared the section, uh, at least uh, for right now, that has uh, three of the four prison epistles. We've still got one to come to, which is the letter to Philemon. Uh, but we are at this letter written to the church at Thessalonica. Uh, the letter is always known as Thessalonians, but uh, it is a place, that's Th- Thessalonica. The city actually still exists today, uh, Salonica. Uh, is a major city there in uh, Greece uh, that if you ever take a, uh, an Aegean cruise, you will probably stop in the port of Salinka and uh, be able to go there uh, to see at least some remnants left of this town. So uh, this is a famous city even today uh, in uh, world history. Uh, we are looking at this, and uh, this is once again another one of Paul's letters. Uh, unquestionably, as you start off, Paul starts it off this way, Paul and Silvanus. Uh, you go, who's that? Probably another name for Silas uh, and Timothy under the church of the Thessalonians, which is uh, in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, when was this written? Well, <clears throat> this was written and, uh, while Paul was on his second missionary journey. What happened, he was in Philippi, and what happened after he left Philippi, which was the first church in Europe, the gospel was preached, uh, he moved down the Ignatian Way, which was like I-80 or I-88 or uh, I-57. He went down a major highway uh, that, uh, if you followed it from where he was at, would eventually get you to Rome. Uh, But a major highway, follows it down, skips a couple of cities, doesn't stop there, but then stops in Uh, this town of Thessalonica. When he's there, we have recorded in Acts chapter 17 this account where he goes into the synagogue on three occasions, three Sabbath days, and declares that uh, the Messiah of the Old Testament had to die and rise again. So he's going through and proving from the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, that this was the case And then he attaches this, that Jesus of Nazareth is that Messiah who had to die and rise again. And he did this three Sabbath days. And as was the norm for uh, the response of the synagogue population is that eventually they realized people are paying attention to Paul, unlike what they used to get as far as services. And so 
they get upset and throw him out, but it's not before there are many Gentiles and a few of the Jews that come to know Christ. We're told that he's there for three weeks, or three Sabbath times, and we're not really told a date beyond that how long he's there. So we know he's there for at least three weeks, and then you have the story where the crowd gets so angry, they go looking for Paul, can't find him, assault the house of Jason, uh, who is a believer, haul him out. Uh, you have these uh, lower men of the baser sort that come and uh, try and grab Paul. Uh, the King James version of that uh, phraseology there. Uh, and uh, they're individuals, what they're accusing Christianity of is turning the world upside down. And uh, when the officials are there, they hear this accusation. They say there's nothing really there. They send Jason and his family home. But what happens is that Paul ends up shipping out at night to the next city down the road, which is the city of Berea. Um, it's, we know for at least three weeks he's in Thessalonica, but as you read the letter to the Thessalonians, it sounds like he may have been there longer than that. We just know he preached three Sabbath days, and then you have this story about, you know, the riot that takes place. It sounds like it's, you know, immediate, but it could have been a couple of weeks and then, uh, the like, but he's not there for a long period of time. And uh, so as you see the notes, he's there three Sabbath days, he preaches this, and as he goes along, Paul went down the coast by himself. Uh, He does have uh, Luke and uh, Silas and Timothy with him, but he leaves them in Berea, which is the the church there that searched the scripture. They were more noble than those in, in Thessalonica. And then Paul goes down, he ends up in Athens, he's there by himself waiting for others to show up, he preaches his message on Mars Hill, and eventually ends up in Corinth. And it's at that time where Timothy and Silas come back uh, to meet him, and Timothy says, here's what's going on in this young church, Uh, and uh, Paul realizes there's some things he needs to address, but he can't leave Corinth to go up and see them, and so he writes this letter, and you say, how do we know when the letter's written? Because we know when Paul was in Corinth, and it's about A.D. 51, Uh, and so uh, this is about eight, nine years before he's put in prison. Chronologically, this letter is the second recorded Pauline letter in our Bible. Okay, Galatians is the first one. Uh, written right after the first missionary journey uh, and uh, written to these churches. But then you have the second missionary journey, and this is the first letter written while Paul is on this missionary journey is to this uh, Thessalonica. So if you were reading chronologically Paul's letters, you would read Galatians, then First Thessalonians. And uh, so that's something just to keep in mind. That's another way of reading the Scripture. Sometimes as you figure out chronologically how it's there, read through uh, your Bible that way purposes for Paul writing this. Paul wrote this letter for many reasons. Uh, the initial chapters are a commendation for this persecuted church. They're still being persecuted even after Paul leaves, uh, and they've been cleared by the government officials. There's still persecution going on. Uh, Paul answered some individuals that questioned his absence. We'll see this. they individuals that are like, well, Paul left us. You know, he you know, they would be using the term, he abandoned us. You know, he left us in our time of need. Uh, What a coward. And Paul has to answer uh, why he had to leave and what his heart truly is towards them. 
And then chapters 4 and 5, Paul addresses really just a number of issues that obviously are things that are going on in the Thessalonican church that Paul just kind of goes, okay, that you need to be reminded about this, and you need to be reminded about this, and this may be something new, but let me just go ahead and, you know, tell you about this. Uh, But he goes through and deals with moral issues, he deals with some doctrinal issues, and even some practical issues as far as living out the Christian life. And uh, as the, the church goes along there, he deals with this, and as you read through the letter. The one thing that goes on in this book as you read through it, and you'll read this as you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, is that there seems to be very much an interest in the end times. Which is kind of unusual, because you think about this, this is a church less than a year old, probably by the time this letter is written, maybe you know six months old, maybe a year old, that's it. But as you go through the letter and you read it, there are references to the second coming in every chapter. Uh, the Lord's coming again, the coming of Christ. Uh, we have the, the passages we'll look at in chapter 4 about the rapture uh, and the like. It's in every chapter. You're going to get to Second Thessalonians uh, next week, and what you're going to find is there, there's talking about the day of the Lord and future judgment and all of these things. There is uh, a major teaching that if we didn't have first thessalonians we would miss a couple of things uh, as far as our prophetic uh, calendar and what's going on Uh, if you look at your bible the book of revelation the olivet discourse which mainly you find that in chapters 24 25 of matthew but you have it in luke and in mark Um, the resurrection section of first corinthians 15 and these thessalonian letters contain the most uh, the prophetic teaching that you find in the new testament and uh, so in this very small book, uh, it doesn't talk about it much, but it gives us, uh, what it does give us is some pretty good material. Uh, the prophetic passages in this letter indicate that Christ's second coming uh, and end time events played a role in the basic doctrines of the early church. Okay, if you were thinking, okay, let's start off with new Christians. Okay, let's talk about this, that Jesus came into this world, he died for sinners, and he rose again. Okay, there you go. You got the basic doctrines that you need. Well, it seems like Paul laid a framework that also included what's going to happen now that he's gone back. Okay, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. I mean, that would be part of the teaching that was going on of these people. What is he doing now? He's interceding uh, in the presence of God for you. Is he coming again? Yes, he's coming again. Let's talk about what it means when he's coming again. And so this would have been part of the basic teaching of the church. They would have understood end-time events. Uh, and you'd say, well, that's kind of, <clears throat> when you talk about Christian doctrines, you kind of go, okay, there's basic doctrines, and that, you know, when we talk about end-time events, that's kind of, you know, uh, you know that's, that's tough stuff. That's like steak. You know, you want milk for, for baby Christians, and then when you get to end-time events, uh, it is uh, like steak material. And you go, well, if it's taught properly, it's basic enough that a, a new Christian can understand these things. Now, some of the details, it's okay. You have to dig in. But uh, for this church, even though it's a year old, it seems to have some grasp on end-time events that uh, you would not you know, readily expect, but uh, probably should be the case when it comes to new Christians. Uh, the theme talked about this afternoon it's very hard to come up with a theme for this book because he just kind of deals with a bunch of different issues um you know what i was thinking brian and i were talking today and i said you know it's really hard to come up with an exact theme for the book of thessalonians and he kind of said well you know 
Christian living in the light of Christ's return. Yeah, okay, you know, it's kind of a generic way of describing it, but okay, you're still learning how to live and knowing that the Lord's coming back, though that's not the, you know, the, the theme that is running throughout the whole thing. As we get into the letter here, you find that uh, the first three chapters are really describing Paul's relationship to the Thessalonians how he felt about them and what he had, uh, and as far as his emotion and his joy uh, regarding them, uh, he spends three chapters talking about this, this connection, we might put it this way, uh, that was between him and this church and uh, ought to be amongst many believers, and it's being exemplified by this church, the connections that go on when the gospel is preached. And so Paul starts off like he does with all of his letters with a form of thanksgiving. Okay, he introduces it, and then there's some sort of thing that he says, okay, I'm thanking God for this, and uh, I am uh, praising God for what he's doing in your life. And what he is uh, doing is that he's praising uh, or thanking God for the fact that this was a church that was known for character that was energized. I'm going to use that term, and we're going to look at a verse to explain what we mean by this. Okay, their hope, their love, and their faith were active. This displayed the gospel's power in the life of these believers. I want you to see how Paul starts this off. Uh, Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you all, Southerner, uh, making mention of you in our prayers. Then he makes a statement. Remembering without ceasing your work of love, or faith, your labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in sight of God and our Father. Okay, so as you read this, how a Greek person would have read this, they would have understood it this way. They would have done it this way, remembering without ceasing your faith that works, your labor, your love that labors, and your hope that's patient. Okay, it's almost uh, this way, that it would be faith works, love labors, and hope, well, we put it this way, endures. See, we oftentimes think, you know, these characteristics, these are characteristics of the Christian life, and you see this uh, grouping of these characteristics in 1 Corinthians 13 and I believe Colossians 1, where you see faith, hope, and love uh, combined together, but you look at this and you go, okay, these are kind of fruits of the Spirit. But what Paul is indicating is that though these are characteristics of a Christian, what you see is that they're active. It's not just, okay, hey, this person's got faith, they've got hope, they've got love. You'd say, well, how, how, how do we know that? Oh, we see it. It's active. Uh, for this church, uh, their faith that works uh, they are not just merely uh, going, okay, everything's all right. No, they're looking at this and going, the Lord's coming back. I have a responsibility because I believe he's coming back, though I've never seen him. I've got to be about my father's business. And that's why you see that this is in the presence of God the Father that this is going on. Or this love that labors. Do you realize the, that if you love somebody, you have to work at it? You know, it's an emotion. No. Read 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and you find that it's an activity. Uh, there, there's activity that shows and displays that love or this uh, hope that is patient, okay? this confidence that is 
willing to endure a lot of things because it knows something's ahead. It sees something ahead. And what Paul says about this church, though they're only a year old probably at this point, and there's something to say about faith like that. These are Christians that we from you know, age would say, oh, probably pretty immature. What Paul is indicating that these individuals, even though they're about a year old, most of them knowing Christ and that, that their life is exemplary and showing forth all the time in their activities what you would hope to be in a mature Christian that the gospel work in their life was powerful and changing them. And as you go through and look at this, and uh, you've got uh, this next note here, this display of the gospel's power was met with opposition. Okay, It's not when you got saved that everything was fantastic, that everyone was like, you know, this is great. You just accepted Christ as your Savior. We live in a culture more and more that that's a stigma. You know, you suddenly have gone after Christ. What? Why? In this culture, it would have been even more because it was a complete transformation of life that takes place. They're living life differently. They're, they're doing things differently. They've done their calendar differently now. You know, they're on Sundays doing things differently than what they used to do. And this church had persecution uh, they were ones who knew that they were saved. Verses 4 and 5 indicate that, that they knew their election of God and that the gospel came unto them not in word only, but also in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And ye know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us, imitators of us and the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. It's like saying this, that you in a year's time have become a, a church that people look at and believers that people look at and go, that's what we ought to be like throughout Achaia and Macedonia. In Berea, people are looking at the church Thessalonica and go, look at the way they live their life. People in Philippi are going, look at the way that those people are living their life. This young church, and they're doing it in the face of great opposition. I mean, that, that's the thing that really is the testimony there. It's not like it is in Berea where it seems like these people are actually studying the Scripture and people are doing this and whatever. And Philippi, the opposition that they had, the government just shut it down, just said, listen, you know, <laughs> let this religion go. We kind of messed up by throwing Paul and Silas in jail. Uh, you know, let them uh, be able to do what they wanted to do as far as a religion. Thessalonica seems to be a place where there was much persecution going on and other churches looking at them and going, look at the stand they're taking. You know, they're not budging in their faith and their love of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is obviously something that God has done in them and has transformed, <coughs> excuse me, has transformed them. And verse 9 says this, for they themselves show of us what manner of entry in we had unto you. How you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. He just simply says, it's obvious to you that you've moved from the superstitions that you have. You believe in one living God. 
who has saved you through his son and your life has been transformed. In fact, you're living your life waiting for that son to come back. He's coming soon. And they live their life like this. Now, I do need to at least stop here for a second because there is something eschatologically, what's that, uh, end time eventy here that you need to pick up on. I'm not going to spend much time on it, but uh, it is something to be aware of. But it says this, that they were deli- that at the very end, Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath, the coming one. I mean, that's what it is in the Greek as you read through it, and you go, what's the wrath being talked about here? Okay, it's not talking about the wrath of God and an eternal hell. What it's talking about, the wrath to come, we'll see this in chapter 4, and we'll see this in chapter 5, that it's talking about what we would call the tribulation that God has saved individuals as believers in the Son out of that. They're not going to see the wrath of God upon the nations. That's what that seven-year time frame is going to be. In fact, Christ called the last three and a half years of that the great tribulation. Not just tribulation, it's a great tribulation unseen by human uh, events and calendar and news and history. You're going to see things go on there that is just beyond human imagination. And what it is saying there is that these individuals are ones who have been delivered from that wrath, the one that's coming, that God is going to bring upon all of the earth. Okay, so that's what that statement is. It's not just merely that they've been saved from hell. It's referring to the fact that there is a wrath upon the nations that God is going to bring, Christ is going to bring when he comes back. Uh, The nations are going to be judged. And so uh, this note there, it'll play a role here as we get further along in our notes, but uh, I do want to at least mark that right now for you to uh, pick up. You see in chapter 2 is where Paul begins to really deal with the individuals that said, okay, Paul abandoned us. You know, he was a chicken, he ran off. Uh, And Paul is going to deal with the fact that, listen, that's not the case. I have to remind you about some certain things. Uh, what he does is that Paul gives his care for the believers despite contrary reports. There may have been Jews that were in the town uh, that wanted people to come back to the synagogue or otherwise, but they're questioning Paul's ministry there. And so what Paul does in this chapter is this, is that he's responding to some in the congregation at Thessalonica who suggest that Paul did not care for them because he abandoned them in the midst of their persecution. In verse 1, Paul says this, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before you and were shamefully entreated, as ye know at Philippi, we were bold in our gospel to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. Uh, And that word contention is the word we get agony from. With much agony, we preached this. See, what he says is, we came in, and we had just left Philippi where you perhaps could even see some of the scars from the beating that they had already just taken in Philippi. And they walk into this church and, or the synagogue with people that don't know Christ and they boldly proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that it was going to stir up something. 
And Paul goes, you remember that. We came into the synagogue and started preaching with boldness. We did not hold back this message, though we knew certain people would be stirred. And you ought to remember this, that we preached this with power. uh, And we did this. I mean, Paul reminded the church of his suffering before at Philippi. When they came to Thessalonica, they did not shy away from the preaching of the gospel that brought persecution. You look at verse 3, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles." He just comes in and he reminds them, we weren't, we weren't shading our words. We weren't trying to you know, win friends and influence enemies by using crafty words and that type of thing. No, we were unapologetically talking about the things that were most important, and that's Jesus Christ and his dying on the cross for the salvation of sinners just like us. He, we didn't use the, the terms that you might if we were trying to win people over. We came boldly preaching the thing you needed without question. I mean, verse 7, Paul says this, We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail for laboring night and day because we would not be chargeable to any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses in God also how holy and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you as ye know how we exhorted and confronted and charged every one of you as a father does his children that you walk worthy of God who has called you into his kingdom and glory. He basically goes through, listen, we treated you like a mother would treat her child. There's a gentleness there. There's a care, a concern. You go, why is he using that term? Because a mother does not forget her children. I mean, that's the statement here, that Paul has abandoned these people and doesn't care. He's just gone down the road. No, and Paul goes, no, there's a care that like a nursing mother for her child and like a father who's concerned about his children turning out right, what does a father do? He sometimes lays out things and says, this is what you need to do. You shouldn't be doing these things. And he said, if you look at our ministry, you'll see that we treated you like a mother and a father in bringing you up to Christ uh, for you to be right before God. And he reminds them of this. I mean, They did what they could to make the message as clear as possible. They cared for these people like a mother would her children. They labored day and night so that the church did not have to care for them. That's what it was there in that section, that we wouldn't be chargeable to you. What they do is they're working to earn their keep. They're not looking for money from these people because they don't want these people to go, well, you know, you're just making a profit off us and then you're running off. The Apostle Paul had some foresight in what the arguments might be. He has the same one in the church at Corinth. He works as a tent maker because he realized the church at Corinth, there would be some in the congregation that said, well, you made money off of us and uh, this. And Paul's going, no, look, I worked with my hands. He seems to do this in the church at Thessalonica, so he can't be accused of this either, that he's profiteering off of them uh, in their mind. 
Now, Paul was not happy with the separation caused by Judaizers. He desired to be with the church because they brought him great joy. He was not happy with some of these individuals from the Jewish groups that were coming in and accusing them. You read this in verse 14, 15, and 16, that these Judaizers were there. But Paul in verse 18 says this, Wherefore we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. We're not told what the hindrance was. Okay? But Paul is is bold in this Holy Spirit proclamation here to go, this is not just some minor detail. This was Satan standing against us and hindering this from happening. Verse 19, For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ as is coming? We, we are so excited to know that you know Jesus Christ and you're going to be looking for his appearing and rejoicing when he comes. We're like parents that are delighting that their children are going to be right where they need to be at. And you see this ending up this, for ye are our glory and joy. So Paul puts to rest really that there is this abandonment that he has done, orphaning these, uh, these young children in Christ. No, these are people that there is a great concern for. Now, chapter 3, we're not going to spend much time on it, but it's basically him explaining the fact that Timothy was coming, uh, had come from... Um, had come back from Thessalonica. Paul had sent him there to minister to them. And what he was delighted to hear about was the continued growth when Timothy came back. He, just, he, he hears about, he says, you know, Timothy told me about this and this, and it's kind of exciting to hear that. Now, just like you are as a parent at times, where, you know, nowadays, you know, kids could text, they don't answer phones anymore, but somebody comes along and goes, I saw your kid, and, you know, doing whatever, and you're like, oh, good. You know, you, you delight in that. Paul was doing this about this church. He keeps hearing about them. Here's what Timothy has to say. Uh, as a result, Paul did what he had been doing on a regular basis. He prayed for the church that their love would be displayed and their hearts established until the coming of Christ. You get to the end of chapter 3, and he just kind of goes, okay, you know what? This is exciting. And what I'm going to do is realize that you're still here on earth, so there's still work to be done, and so we're going to pray that you are established and standing in your Christian faith, and you're not going to be moved, that your love will continue to be working forth, laboring like it has been, and that it does this. And Paul could have closed right there. Okay, And it even sounds like, as you get to the end of chapter 3, that he's closing down. But what Paul does is a change right there in chapter 4 that he gives some challenges for the church, whether it's in teaching or it's actual commands or challenges. Uh, it's just a variety of different things that he just heard from Timothy that he's just kind of throwing things out there going, okay, you need to take care of this. You need to think this way. Stop doing this. Uh, and he does this. And the very first thing he does is he gives an exhortation to purity. Just read in verse uh, number or chapter four, verse one. Uh, Furthermore, we beseech you, we challenge you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus Christ that as ye have received us, how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. For ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification. Okay, here's God's will for you. You know, people are like, "What's the will of God?" And they, you know, go through this mystical thing. What the will of God is? You know what the will of God is? do what he says. 
you know, some of the other things will fall into place as far as the details, but the problem is, is we're missing the fact of just doing what he says. We're looking for the further things, and he says, okay, here's the, the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you are set apart from the world, and here's how you're set apart from the world. Verse number three, that ye should abstain from fornication, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel in sanctification. It's talking about this, your body is what he's talking about, and sanctification and honor. And that every one of you know how to, or excuse me, verse 5, not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles which know not God. And then number three here, that no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. And you go, what's he talking about there? Okay, that you know how to possess your vessel, that you're not using your body in immorality, and that you're not stealing the purity from other people what should rightfully be theirs, that you're not rob. I mean, he uses strong terms here, that you're not defrauding. You know, well, you know, it's okay to mess around, you know, so, so your youthful oats and that type of thing, and you're going, and the Apostle Paul goes, no, that, that's not a right philosophy. That you're not stealing the purity uh, that someone else could have, that you're not robbing someone in the future of having somebody that's pure. And so what he does, many of the believers in the church had come out of a pagan worldview that accepted morale, immorality as the norm. You know, they're digging up, and they're still digging up buildings from Pompeii, but if you've ever seen pictures of uh, the buildings at Pompeii, a lot of the walls have things painted on them that you would not want to see. This is just in living rooms, you know, whatever, people's houses. This is just the norm. You have people that are in this church who are newly saved, had lived their whole life in this kind of background, and for them, the immorality was a regular part of life. And what the Apostle Paul has to say is, if you want to follow the will of God, you want to do things pleasing to him, you're not going to go down this course. Okay. Uh, part of sanctification was to keep from immorality. The believer was not to hurt others by their immoral behavior. And you go, well, wow, that's, that sounds kind of harsh and almost extreme what the Apostle Paul is saying here, but he's saying, listen, this is part of the will of God. This is not, you know, it's not one of the Ten Commandments that uh, you're not to be adulterers. You know, he does say this. Uh, And so the Apostle Paul reminds this congregation, this is something that you are supposed to do. It's in the will of God. So do it. So he deals with that issue, an exhortation of purity. He has an exhortation of brotherly love that you love as family members. Here you are in this church. Here's what you ought to do. Uh, Verse number uh, 9, but as touching brotherly love, you need not that I write unto you, for ye yourselves are taught of God to love one another. And indeed, ye do it toward all the brethren which are in Macedonia. But we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you study to be quiet uh, and do your own business and to work with your own hands as we commanded you that ye may walk honestly towards them that are without and that ye may have lack of nothing. And he just simply says this, okay, here's what you need to do. In line with Paul's thinking about purity, a believer should have a genuine care for other believers. Okay, if you really care about the morality of other believers, don't you act immoral. But in this case, what you ought to be doing is treating them as family members and caring for them. And this care should be seen in a diligence. That's the idea of study there, Okay to take care of one's own needs and then the needs of others. Okay, so there is what you're going to find in 2 Thessalonians. There's a group of people in the church there that aren't working anymore. 
they're saying this, oh, hey, the Lord's coming back. We don't have to work. You know what? Just have a great time until he comes back. And what they're doing is destroying the testimony of the church and the community because they won't work. And Apostle Paul's statement is they don't work, they don't eat. But that's, that's the type of thing you're going to find in the next letter. So Paul's kind of dealing with that right now and just saying, okay, you need to be working and so you can take care of your needs and then you can take care of the needs of your brothers and sisters in Christ, that you're diligent about this, that in your daily activities, you're just doing your job, okay? You're working like should be. Which then the Apostle Paul goes to not so much a challenge, but he's instructing uh, we, we have it this way, in understanding the second coming. And the situation arises, and I'm just going to put this up here, and then we, it's a very familiar passage. What had happened to the church of Thessalonica was uh, that it was the concerned about those that knew Christ but had already died, even in this young church. Okay, the young church, some may have died in persecution, who knows? Uh, but in this young church, uh, people had already died. And so this question goes, well, what's going to happen to those that died? Understand, some of these are coming from a Greek, a Greek uh, mindset that only the spirit was eternal. The body was evil. We talked about this last week in Gnosticism. The body's evil. It doesn't rise from the dead. So, so what happens to those people who died in Christ, that died in their faith in Jesus Christ? What happened to them? And Paul goes, okay, I'm going to give you some instructions again. I kind of gave this to you, but you probably forgot. I'm going to tell you here's what's going to happen. This is going to happen. Paul taught the church about the rapture. Understand that in your Bible, you will never see the word rapture. Okay, so if you go to your concordance and type in the word rapture and you're going, I'm not hearing that word. Realize this, that the Latin word rapture is the, the Greek, you know, this shall be caught up. Okay, so if you're reading it in Latin, that's what it would have been, raptures. Um, and so that's where we get this term rapture from. Okay, it's not, it's not a term that we would use in our English Bible. If you're reading Latin, you would have read it, but that's where this term, this idea of being caught up. You go, what's this, this idea of being caught up? Those past believers would not miss out on Christ's return, but their bodies would meet their souls in the air, and then believers that were, were here would bodily meet the Lord in the air. This event is for the church and is a precursor. Okay, it's before the Lord comes back at his second coming. You go, well, what's the Lord doing when he comes back at his second coming? He's warring with the nations, visibly. In this case, what you have is the Lord is catching out his church. And you go, why would he take his church out? If you know your you know, book of Daniel and you understand the book of Revelation, what the Lord does is he takes the church out so that he can spend the next seven years dealing with the nation of Israel and all the things he needed to fix with them. Those 490 years he has to deal with, or the 70 weeks, he's got one seven left where he's got to deal with the nation of Israel and he's going to work through the nation of Israel, seeing people saved and the like, and people getting saved and preaching the message of Jesus Christ and all of that, but he's working mainly through the nation of Israel. There is no church. He's pulled them out. 
And so what you have for seven years is that the church is with God, bodily resurrected, enjoying the glories of heaven uh, there, uh, along with all the other saints who's, well, they're waiting to be resurrected too. So, um, but what you have is this, is that they, they didn't miss anything. You know, those people who died before Christ came back, are they going to miss out on it? The answer is no. And he does say, you know, you don't sorrow as those that have no hope in this passage. Okay, there is going to be sorrow when people pass away in this life. That's expected. The Apostle Paul's not saying, you know, don't worry about it. No, you'll be okay. No, he does recognize this, but he goes, I don't want you to be ignorant. Okay, I want you to know something that they're going to be a part of the very things that you'll enjoy. Being caught up bodily to be in the presence of the Lord. And so he teaches this, and, and this is designed to give them comfort because there is serious concern. What about these people who have died? And it's a legitimate question. And so the Apostle Paul answers this, that uh, as you go through this, and so he says in verse 18, wherefore comfort one another with these words, okay? And this is why we read these, or read this passage at a funeral. I typically read this when we're at the graveside, because then it's easier to remember that the body we're putting in there they're not going to miss out on anything that you're going to experience either. So, anyhow. Now, what you have in verses 1 through 11 is to live in contrast to those who will undergo God's wrath. Okay, verse 1. But of the times and seasons, brethren, ye have no need that I write unto you. For yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night... And you go, what's the day of the Lord? Well, if you have a whole of the Old Testament to work off of, it's talking about darkness before light. Remember, a day in Hebrew culture starts at night and turns into day. And what you have when it talks about the day of the Lord is a time of judgment, darkness, and when God brings his judgment, and then suddenly he's going to appear and you're going to have a day think of it this way, it lasts a thousand years. <laughs> um, but the Lord's going to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. But you have this darkness that takes place before Jesus comes back and rules on the earth. And what he says is, listen, I'm not going to talk about the times of the season. When is the Lord going to come back? Because we can all guess and be wrong. But I do want you to understand this. The day of the Lord's coming, and it will surprise everyone. It'll come as a thief in the night verse 3, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them as travail upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, and that day should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all children of light, and the children of the day. We are not of the light or night and not of the darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. For they that sleep, sleep in night. They that be drunken are drunk in the night, but let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for an helmet uh, the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to, here's that term again, he's not appointed us to the wrath. Okay, you're not going to go through that day of the Lord as far as the judgment side of it. 
Uh, we are not going to be there and uh, this, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should not live, or that we should live together with them. Wherefore, comfort yourself together and edify one another, even as ye also do. So what you have here is this, Paul had already stated the believers would miss the wrath to come. This wrath is not a reference to the final judgment, but to the day of the Lord when God will judge the nations of the world. It is known as the tribulation. Here Paul challenged believers to live differently than those who will experience God's wrath. You say, how is that uh, to be a difference? It's as different as night and day. Because what Paul says, Paul plays in the theme of light and dark, day and night. The believer is supposed to challenge those who will suddenly experience God's wrath there to walk as lights in a world that is full of darkness. So don't do anything to darken your testimony. Because there's a day of wrath coming for those that miss out on understanding who Christ is. And then you get to verses 12 through 28, and the Apostle Paul just kind of says, okay, here's your responsibility. Get to know those that are around you. Okay, verse 12. Uh, we beseech you, brethren, to know them which labor among you that are over you in the Lord and admonish you. You go, what's that? The leadership in the church. Get to know them. Uh, verse 13. Steam them highly for the work's sake and be at peace among yourselves. Okay, so there's this element. You got church leadership. The Apostle Paul and Timotheus had been there, or Timothy had been there, and Silas were there, and he's just saying, if you knew our hearts, you would know that we weren't like what some of these people said, these Judaizers. So get to know those that are around you. Uh, secondly, believers need to know the condition of the people around them and work to meet those needs. You have this in the statement, verse 14, now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, or, as you have this, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men, see that none render evil for evil unto any man, but ever follow that which is good, both you amongst yourself and to all men. It's basically saying, you go around and you pay attention to everyone around you and you try and meet their needs. Whether they need lifting up, whether they're unruly, you go, what's that mean? They're being wild, you challenge them, and that means both the church and, it does say this, to the church and then that are outside. Okay, it's this idea. But you also have this, third believers need to take up the spiritual responsibility and exercise spiritual gifts. You know, what's that? Verse 16, rejoice evermore. Okay, that's something you're supposed to be doing spiritually. Or pray without ceasing. Or in everything give thanks. Or verse 19, quench not the spirit, despise not the prophesying. You go, what's that? Uh, it's prophesying is a spiritual gift. So use your spiritual gifts, whatever they may be. Prove all things, hold fast that which is good, abstain from the appearance okay, of evil. Why? Think back. You go, we're walking in the light. We're walking as those in the day. Why would I do something that has the appearance of evil, of darkness? No, don't go there. You're trying to make your testimony obvious. And then Paul closes out the letter. He's done. And so you, you kind of go, okay, so Paul is dealing with these people and going, the Lord's coming back. You need to live like he's coming back. Yeah. So I guess that theme we started off with, Christian living in the light of the second coming of Christ or Christ coming uh, is a proper understanding of this letter uh, as you close it out. So uh, 
good passages, some familiar ones, but uh, yet the challenges are there, uh, and it's the same for every generation. Uh, the challenge is the same. Uh, it hasn't changed over 2,000 years. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the reminder that your son's coming again. Could be before we ever get into our cars. But even in the time that we have here this evening as we pray in your presence, may we pray as people who are recognizing there is time where our work will be done, but there are going to be people in this world that are under your wrath. So help us as we pray that we would pray as people who are recognizing the needs of others and praying for uh, what they need uh, the most. In some cases, it's the salvation of their souls. And so may we be uh, fervent even in our prayer uh, here this evening as we come into your presence. And this we pray in the name of your Son, who is coming again. Amen.